Hello, everybody. This is David Goldsmith, and welcome to the Project Moon Hut podcast series, The Age of Infinite. Our focus is on the opportunities derived as we collectively establish sustainable life on the moon through the acceleration of a space-based ecosystem here and within Mirth. Today, we have an unbelievable guest on the line, Rayut Abramovich. She is a scientific advisor at the Davidson Institute of Science and Education and also a core lecturer at the International Space University. But that's, that doesn't say anything about who she is. She is an amazing individual who's helped guide me to some degree through, the, uh, through Israel's uh, space tech sector and some of the things that I should and direct me in areas that I should be focusing on to help grow Project Moon Hut. How are you today, Ruth? I'm great, David. How are you? I'm fantastic. Uh, today we selected a title, and this is for everybody, and you could tell me if I'm wrong, Ryo, but we, we selected a title, Where Do New Technologies Fit Within the Earth Ecosystem? However, in our pre-calls and our call today, you said, well, there was this other title, The Alternative Concept for Building Trade Routes Within Mirth, and you said, I'm going to touch on that a little bit. Is that correct? Indeed. Okay. So you've got a few bullet points of the uh, topics areas we're going to cover. Can you share them with us? Absolutely. So um, I have a PhD in microbiology and immunology, and my field of research is astrobiology. And through explaining a little bit about astrobiology and fields of research within it, I'm going to talk a little bit about biotech solutions and what is the future potential for them in the Mirth system and the Moon Earth system, in my opinion. It's a okay. topic I care about a lot. So I have to talk about it just a little bit, David. No, you need to. You need I to. Need you, to. <laughs> I, I've got to learn from you. Okay. So number two, what would be the next topic? So the next topic is that for this conversation and this issue about trade routes, I was very interested to know more about ancient trade routes. Uh. I was So I looked around a little bit and I did a bit of reading and there's actually a few things interesting about their structure and distribution and what we know now and what were the concept and the logic behind their distribution, which can actually be relevant in my opinion again, for the Mirth system. So it will be a very interesting discussion for that I'm, point. I'm, act, I'm so excited to hear about that because that's a core component of the first discussion that we had about the establishment of Project yes. Moon So that yes. is fantastic. Yes. And my third point is how new tech, or at least what we think is the most exciting new tech that happening that is happening now, and how does that fit into our trade route uh, concept discussion, where things should go. Okay? Okay. Perfect. Is there? A, we're going to cover three. Yep. Okay. So let's start with biotech solutions. I'm excited to get started. Okay, so I'm going to start from the beginning. I'm going to tell a little bit about astrobiology, and David, feel free to stop me anytime. <laughs> I can go on and on. No, 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 no. We'll, we'll I, I will definitely stop you, but I don't think it's going to be. I think we're going to we're going to have a lot of information. This is going to be fun. Okay. Okay. So to begin with, astrobiology is a term that has been coined in 1990. Uh, in the first astrobiology conference uh, by people from NASA Ames Research Center. And before that, it was sometimes called xenobiology and sometimes exobiology. But today, the term that we use is astrobiology, and it's much bigger than what those terms used to be. So today, we have a lot of different fields of research under the topic astrobiology. So for instance, uh, astrobiology centers about life. So how did life begin on planet Earth? Um, how did it evolve on planet Earth? What is the future prospects of life in the universe, in the solar system? And within it, there is a few interesting topics. So for instance, we're talking about the basic elements of our solar system and the universe. If we have uh, an abundance of carbon and hydrogen and oxygen and phosphorus and nitrogen, we do not expect to find, do we expect to find life forms which are based on silicate and other exotic materials? Mm, we're not so sure. The topic of how the first cell has arrived on planet Earth, how the first 
DNA molecule enzyme. We just don't know these things. And there's fascinating research going into the origin of life. And followed by that, the evolution of life and the scale, the time scales, which it took life to evolve on planet Earth. And, and we're very interested in the transition between one cell to multiple cell, from unicellular to multicellular organisms. And we think that we have a good idea of how long it takes to do that transition. And we're looking for that kind of, I would say, time scales in different planets in the universe and in the solar system to understand better what we should expect to find in terms of life forms. One so of the you're <coughs> yes, you're hoping, excuse me, you're hoping that by understanding these <coughs> activities, you might be able to pinpoint it on another planet or another moon that there is a, a, uh, a similar timetable happening on their planet as mm -hmm. had on ours correct mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. okay yeah and uh the things that we find is we find that uh we believe now that single life forms like bacteria and viruses probably happened very early on from the beginning of planet earth let's say 3.8 billion years old maybe 4 billion years old and the planet is estimated to be just 4.5 billion years old but then when we look for fossils which indicate multicellular life forms, we just find them around the 600 million years ago. So we have about, you know, we have about 3 billion years of one cells, bacteria and viruses, living happily on this planet in under all sorts of conditions. And we have the multicellular ones in the last, you know, 600 million years old. Okay. And uh, the things that go with this, with this research, is about where life forms can be found, what kind of environmental conditions we can find stuff. My own PhD was about stromatolites in Shark Bay in Western Australia, and it's a fascinating topic. Before I started it, I didn't know anything like that existed at all. We're talking about microbes that basically form a rock. Really? Okay. Yeah, they form so a rock. I, I was walking on living stromatolites in Shark Bay of Western Sound. I was basically, it looked like the seabed. It wasn't a seabed. It was layers upon layers of microbes and microbial communities. It was fascinating. And you can visit that area. It's a, it's a UNESCO, you know, protected site. And you can visit it as a tourist. And now you can see the progress between things that are living in the ocean. And after, you know, thousands and millions of years, all you see is rocks. And it's really? amazing because then you understand that some of the rock forms that you meet on planet Earth are actually been there and were built by microbes. It's fascinating. Huh. And then you want Never to say, Never would have thought that. Yeah. And then you want to say, Wait a second, Mars, Mars. Okay, wait a second. We're talking about Mars, so no Mars yes. at the moment. So let's go back. But uh, habitability is a big issue in astrobiology research. And we like to look at stromatolites. We like to look at things which are called, in general, extremophiles, things that can survive. Um, high pressure, high temperature, very cold temperature, acidity. Uh, we find life forms are basically can adapt to almost any situation. Really, it's kind of fascinating. And what people do is after they find these type of life forms, they uh, look at their DNA, they look at their enzyme, they look at their membranes, for instance, and they adopt solutions that can help either research or our daily life in products. So, for instance, uh, one of the famous uh, bacteria or, uh, isolated from a hot spring is called Thermus aquaticus. And thermo you know, yeah, I, I'm writing notes down. Oh, dear. These are not easy words. I'm probably <laughs> misspelling them like crazy. I'm saying, I don't even, I'm kind of like, you know, when you, when you don't know how to spell something, you become sloppy. Well, I'm becoming sloppy because okay. I have no clue how to write these, but that's okay. okay. Go on. So what you have to understand is that a lot of the things that we use, whether it's cream or lifestyle um, tablets or things that we eat, eat, things that we put on our skins that, that goes into medicine like antibiotics, they're all produced in industrial processes, right? And industrial processes are very strict. They're usually very high temperature. They have high pressure. Not a lot of things can survive in these things, in these kind of environments. So what we do now is that we find sometimes microbes and we either change their DNA to produce what we need, like insulin or things like that. And then they, yeah. because they are used to extreme environments, they can 
survive the industrial process, or we collect from within their cells in batch quantities, we collect the things that we want. So for instance, this bug that I cursed you with has a very special DNA enzyme, okay, that knows how to synthesize DNA at 94 degrees, at 72 degrees Celsius. That's uncommon. And we use it in a very important research methodology that is the basis for every science that we do now with basically with DNA synthesis, sorry, Um, research, sequencing, everything is done with what we have gathered and what we took from this little bug. It's amazing. Entire labs across the world are using the same enzyme from the same bug to do lots and lots of things. So I'm all for extremophile research, and I think there's some glorious things out there also in our world, but also in the solar system. Yeah? Yeah, wow. So those were a few things about astrobiology, extremophiles, and some biotech applications of it, just the potential for it in a very brief and overview. Okay? Okay. Perfect. And I think that for the average person who's listening to get a little understanding of what astrobiology is, uh, is a a definite benefit. And I think I shared with you the first person I sat down with at NASA Ames was a person in who's worked in astrobiology, Lynn Harper. So uh, we never really went into these uh, types of what she does and how she does it. So yeah. it's amazing to hear. Thank you. No worries. My pleasure. Um, lots of things happening in astrobiology. So we, we study caves, what's happening inside caves. We study lava, active volcanoes. We study the depth of the ocean, uh, sometimes with uh, vehicles, autonomous robotic vehicles that can withstand this type of pressure, special submarines. A lot of tech goes into astrobiology research. So we are advancing not only the knowledge, but the technology that needs to in order to gain that knowledge and work with it. Yeah. So the this is the connection, I guess, that I've always lost, and you, you somewhat tied it together, mm-hmm. is that I had asked myself, okay, astrobiology how do you work on astro (laughs) if you're on earth and it appears that you're working in environments to understand how animals creatures whatever survived on earth as a means to understand how they would survive in space is that kind of the connection yeah and people are doing a very direct connection so for now so, for instance, uh, a published uh, article of a researcher, I think from one of NASA's research center, I don't remember which one, basically said, okay, I know how dried up stromatolites layers look like on planet Earth, right? In certain uh, basins and rivers and whatnot and bays and dried up bays. And then she said, okay, we now have high rise and satellite photographs of Mars. So let's look on all the areas that we know that used to be lakes and oceans on Mars, and let's see if we can find the same type of morphology that we see on planet Earth. And she found out, and she compared Hmm. them in this article. So she's saying, look, there's a big possibility that those places on Mars actually have remnants of stromatolite. Maybe we should, you know, direct our further research towards there, and et cetera, et cetera. But people are doing direct comparisons all the time. Yeah. And I, can, and I can see that. I was watching a video yesterday, and they were pointing out uh, through the galaxy system, uh, I think it was an imagery of Mars with a, a water droplet. And therefore, by saying there's a water droplet, you can look for the next clue that says something else might have existed. So I can understand how you're looking at those parallels that you could then say, okay, what would be next? What could have happened? What would have happened? Mm-hmm. Great. Fantastic. Mm-hmm. Cool. So let's go to these trade routes. Wow! I'm excited to hear you. You've done some homework for us. I'm I'm uh, I'm on. I I I, I, I guess yeah. the term pins and needles is not what I'd like to say. I'm really excited to hear what you found. Okay, so apparently there are vast um, trade routes networks that we know about now, and they started, of course, very ancient, like. We're talking uh, perhaps uh, 7th century BC, even earlier. Some of them has, have existed even till the 1400s, by the way, such as the Silk Road. Uh, 
Now, it's interesting how researchers have looked at these trading routes, and at least few researchers um, has came up with these different algorithms to explain why trade routes look like they do which is interesting. So for instance, let's just say there are very well-known overland routes, for instance, like the Silk Road that went from the east to the west. It started from the first century BC, okay, until the 1400s. It, people um, used it to move a lot of different uh, spices and gems and treasures and commerce, the different commerce, animals if you needed, and also a lot of scripture, for instance, Buddhistic scriptures and there was a cultural exchange on the Silk Road that was an overland route. There was also a very famous maritime route going through um, the Mediterranean and going through different oceans. So, for instance, there was a, a Roman India route that went through the Red Sea ports, started from the first century, sort of, till the seventh century AD, sort of, when the few centuries after the Roman Empire had fallen. And again, you see all these interesting things coming back and forth. And then, of course, you ask yourself, what happened to all the ports, for instance? What happened to the cities that were along their routes? How did someone in antique time who didn't have a phone <laughs> and didn't know, you know, that he needed to travel, we're talking thousands of kilometers, in order to do these routing expeditions? What was the decision? How did it work? So there's a few... Um, central terminology that I came about. I'll be happy to discuss it with you. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm, I'm, I'm really, <laughs> I'm really following you. Okay. This is cool. Okay, so this is cool. So first of all, there's. We'll start from the smallest one to the to the most obvious one. I, I'll call it this way. So the first one is something called ismas. Do you know what an ismas is? It's a new word well, for me. Let's spell it first. Oh my God, it's, it? it's in Latin and it's like the worst spelling ever in Latin. It's like I-S-T-H-M-U-S, something like that. Okay. And you pronounce No, I have no clue what it is. Okay, so Isthmus is a narrow strip of land between two big oceans, for instance, okay. or two big seas. So, for instance, if you had an, a small, narrow uh, island and people had to go through um, a thousand kilometers through a cape in order to go from one side of the island or the continent to the other side, people yeah. would be very stressed to find a shortcut. Yes. So the shortcut would usually be a river. It would be small. It would allow the passageway of, of a few boats and a few, you know, goods, nothing too big. But... Because it was such an important shortcut, shortcut, okay, the the cities along this river would be huge, like would be uh, proliferating, you know, marketplaces, huge. Okay, so that's mm -hmm. the first topic. Yep. Isma, something that can be a shortcut between two very distant places. Great. Second thing, terminology that I found out, something called the central place theory, which was devised by a German dude. <laughs> <laughs> And it's very interesting central place theory, but it's a bit simplistic. It says um, something along the lines of, let me see, the primary, it says two things, interesting, in my, in my opinion, two things. First, it says the primary purpose of a settlement or market town, okay, is the provisions of goods and services for the surrounding market area. And the second thing is that determined factor, okay, in the location of any central place is the threshold which compromises the smallest market area necessary for the goods and services to be economically viable. What they're trying to say is that they want to calculate what is the minimum needed in order for people to travel there. Yep. Okay? So that's a central place theory. That it has a few variations along the centuries, but it's very, it's very simple in that way. Also, the basic assumption, it talks about, for instance, like urban development, People can travel uniformly. There are no mountains or river to cross. It's it's actually very very simple in its basic assumptions. Yeah, but at that time, it was probably extremely valuable to know <clears throat> what is the minimum needed to be able to make that journey or to to survive on that uh, in that settlement. So I could see how it could be valuable. It, yes. was, it was probably not a theory back then. It was just, hey, we need this much to get to there. 
And in order to get to the next space, we need the following. Yeah. So there was probably a mental cognitive, someone who had done this many times over said, no, no, if you don't carry this, you're going to be in trouble. You need this much to get there. So yeah, I could see that as valuable. Yes. And it also, um, it takes care of both sides of the equation, the traveler and the marketplace. Like it, it takes in consideration a few more things. When we're talking about trade routes, at least in earth type of trade routes, there's, uh, there's an exchange. You go someplace and you get something in return. Um, you see a lot of people going in that trade route. You come back and forth. There's a certain type of exchange that probably happens if the trade route, for instance, is a thousand kilometers. You're doing trades every, let's say, 100 kilometers. You're not waiting yeah. to, to, to take one thing and go all, perhaps a few precious things, yes, because they're, you know, they're very, very valuable. But because how the way is, and you have to cross mountains, and if you're on a boat, there's waves. If you're on a ship, there are waves. You know, there's monsoon season. You have to take a lot of things into consideration how much you're going to lose on the way. And it's um, I, yeah. The analogy, excuse me, that I, I've, yeah. I'm thinking about is in places, for example, Siberia or in, the, uh, in Canada, when you have winter weather, you will often have shelters that people can stop at along the way knowing that that's the next destination. You're not going you know, 3,000 kilometers. You're going 100 kilometers, 100 kilometers, 100 kilometers, 100 kilometers. And each one, there's a new yes. uh, a, a supply depot yes. with a, uh, a cabin that you can survive the, the, a day or two of rest and be able to move on. Yes. It's very relevant for space trade routes, in my opinion, because okay. some aspects of what we're dealing right now is the vastness of space, which would look exactly the same to someone who's starting a 1,000, 2,000 kilometer trade route back at the time. Yes. And we're the same psychological creatures that we were 2,000, 3,000 years ago. We haven't changed. Okay? So it's important yep. to, to look at these things. Now, what if I told you that there's a model out there online that you can use in order to generate time and expense simulation for connection between any two sites across different media. In this case, we're talking specifically for Earth. We're talking land yeah. or ocean, specific media, different media, and for specific means of transport and mode of, sorry, specific means, foot, whatever, and mode of transport and months of the year. Something... A global. I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't believe you. I wouldn't believe you that there's an online resource that can do all of that very easily. It, I didn't say anything about easy. No, just kidding. But I found one, and it's amazing. Wow. And I'm thinking this model took in consideration the model of the Roman world because we have so much data on it that we can actually know all the different routes that were used in the Roman world, which we're talking about. 632 sites from which 301 were seaports. We're talking like road and desert tracks of wow. 84,631 kilometers. 1,026 sea routes. We're talking something that takes in consideration everything, including the month of the year. And I, was, I got really, really excited about it. And it's available wow. online. And it's an amazing project. But the beauty that, of it, that's, yeah, sorry. Huh. Wow, that's, that's just amazing that they, it's, it's so large. I'm thinking of today's logistics manager. Yes. Sitting in a shop and pulling up, a, you know, they could fire up their computer and on there there's all sorts of uh, locations and destinations and drop-offs and weights and everything. And yet this was done pre, pre, pre any of these types of technology. So I wonder if they had a central logistics command no. in Rome. I don't. I, first, of course, Rome was a central logistical, an amazing city and an amazing country. It was an empire. They definitely had logistics and communication, and they had soldiers to patrol across all the Roman world, which was huge yeah. at the time to, yes. to get the trade route. But as a traveler you wouldn't have an exact, you would know sort of like what it's going to take you to go from one place to another. But this model allows you to get like an efficiency map of which would be not necessarily the shortest route, but the most efficient one. Huh. 
Now, what if if we had the same type of model to do the same thing for um, understanding how the trade network would work between Earth, ISS, the International Space Station, in a lunar base, and perhaps other bases as well, or depots? We could have made the calculation and understand where the economic benefit is. Yes. That would be awesome. Yes, and, and it would be if you can calculate that out for anybody to be able to work within. Yes. And then you'd also be able to know where within the system you need to have that secondary or tertiary yes. base. That's what I want to talk to upon, you about. We yeah, need. Based upon yeah. whether you have enough, uh, the size of your ship, the, 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 the payload that you're carrying. Yes, whether it's yeah. a solar wind uh, situation, right. it's the same thing like having a typhoon. You need to take that into consideration. And can you explain a solar wind? <laughs> uh, a little bit. There are a lot of uh, charged particles coming from the from the sun because of its nuclear activity, and they just uh, go in all directions from the sun. Sometimes there are big explosions from the sun, and then you have a, a big wave, a big concentration of, of these charged particles. And because they are charged, they are in, they interfere with electronics and they interfere sometimes with uh, magnetic fields as well. And most of the time, that's one of the reasons why satellites cannot be left by themselves uh, orbiting the Earth. They always need satellite operators because one of the, the tricks of the trade is that in order to protect your satellite from solar winds, you shut it down. Ah. Yeah. So you know it's coming. Mm-hmm. And you shut it down. You shut it down until the wave, until the until the storm is over. It's like turning, like in sailing, turning into the wind. Yes. You're you you're don't resting turn, until. Yeah, you don't turn anything, well, yeah, but you do yeah, shut I understand it down. That, but I'm saying in, in yeah on on water when you know you're going to have a large wind, you might turn into the wind into irons, is what it's called, mm -hmm. and that allows you not to get this the brunt of that wave that hit, so you could turn it off. That's I never I w wouldn't have thought of that, mm -hmm. but yes, you, someone is managing that uh, so that they don't get fried in the process. Yep. Cool. Yes. So I'm very interested in understanding or theorizing what would be a good base in our network of mirth in order to let people to feel it's economically viable to send all these ships up and then do the processes that they want us to do. For instance, I would argue, and you know, feel free to, to tell me what you think. I would argue that if we have a mining facility on an asteroid and it want to send things, you know, to planet earth, it might be cost effective to send it back to the International Space Station to dock it there. And only when you accumulate enough packages from this mining or from another consortium, it would make sense to send it down to planet Earth because planet Earth is so cost, so costly to get things off the planet. So going down, yes, I, I would assume it would be the same it's no different than the shipping industry. If we take the large ocean vessels, they have feeders that go up into waterways. So let's say you're a manufacturing facility up in Guangzhou in, in China. You don't bring your product directly down to the large vessel. What you'll do is you'll bring it to a smaller port. Mm -hmm. They aggregate mm -hmm. those and bring it down to a larger area where there's going to be a larger vessel that will take it. Mm -hmm. And then they finally bring it to, let's say, the Hong Kong port. And in the Hong Kong port, they're going to have 15,000 cargo containers clustering. on the vessel. And it's going to, so it's a clustering, yes, clustering. It's a clustering process. So, so yes, that's a, that's exact. That would probably be the best way to manage that. Mm -hmm. And I say that only because I brought this up before with people in the, in the industry of trans transportation, <coughs> transportation mm -hmm. is we don't have means or an understanding of how we're going to bring product to earth right now. We don't have ports. You know, in, yeah. in, on earth, we have a port. We bring things from one port to another. Yeah. It has to be processed. It has to be approved. Yeah. We don't have ports. And I've talked about this with Dennis Wingo. We should have a port in space. Well, we should have ports on Earth. And who's going to manage that? Who's, is it going to be in the center of the ocean? Is someone going to clean it for space dust or materials that could be hazardous? Uh, who's going to stamp it, tag it, 
shipping. say that it really did come. Yeah. yeah. The, on the side of the box, it says it says Bangladesh. Well, on the side of the box, it's got to say uh, asteroid XYZ. Yeah. And someone's got to approve and say that that's a valid uh, supply route. Yeah. Cool. That's what I think. Mm. And I just wonder if the internet, I think, and at its core, I think the International Space Station is a modular construct. You are allowed perhaps to add modules. Perhaps it yes. is feasible to make it grow a little bit further and maybe add solar panels if you need more energy. I think it's possible. But the question, of the, course, is is cost. Who's going to actually pay for it? And then I, I think today we know who's going to do the actual work. We still we have the people who know how to technically do it. The question is, um, of course, priorities and funding, in my opinion. Well, I did have, again, with Dennis, I had this conversation and I talked, we were talking about the Project Moonha classification system and how that yeah. uh, the tool allows people to be able to do the understand where they work in space. And one of the challenges we talked about when we talked about spaceport and the International Space Station was there was an option to use one type of architecture versus another type of architecture. Mm -hmm. And he said the people deciding on it actually use the architecture that is not as stable. They could have used a stronger medium which would allow the International Space Station to be expandable much further than it is today. So I don't know how many modules you can add and have, still have the rigidity, the, the structure that is necessary to be able to make it work. That's just something we'd have to look into. But yes, the, uh, an international space station or another space station. I would argue port. I would argue if we cannot use the international space station. It's also on low Earth orbit, which is mm -hmm. number three, I think, in your classification system. Yes. <laughs> um, it's all, that's also not so good in a way, but it, it has its certain... Uh, advantages. Well, why, why do you say why do you say that it's not so good that the International Space Station's in three? Well, I would uh, argue that if something was a bit higher, it might have been easier to uh, connect to to do docking and things like that. But I might be wrong, so I don't want to go. So in the if you say to go from into four into medium Earth orbit, are you saying higher Earth orbit? High. Where higher Earth orbit? Okay. Mm -hmm. And, uh, yeah, it would be very interesting if you had, like, this construct that would be able also to be a proper port, you know, for fixing, maintenance, all these things. And it would be easy to, relatively easy, perhaps, to get to. I don't know. But it's definitely, if we don't have that kind of a port, if ISS is not stable, if they want to disintegrate it, I don't know. I think it's it's a great research station now. Um, yep. Then I, I'm pretty much sure that the moon has to be the next logical phase for that kind of a thing. Well. It's it, it all it means based upon what you've just shared in trade routes is that we probably would need to be building another port, meaning the International Space Station might be good enough for small cargo. Yeah. And then for anything that's large cargo coming out of, for example, asteroids. Yes. Uh, we need a larger port. I, I'm thinking the difference between a small little depot in my hometown as compared to a FedEx depot. FedEx is a large facility handling a lot of volume, and there's also small facilities handling smaller packages and, and cargo. But first, you have to establish a really good trade route, because until you do a really good trade route, everybody will try to do their own landing, their own, you know, rocket mm -hmm. um rocket technology not everybody will convert to spacex or region blue and you still have these variety of different uh technologies little bit varieties but still very important when it comes to to space travel uh that would slow down the process so it's it's an interesting yeah well it's it's no different than footpaths in cities <clears throat> in the beginning people use all different types of uh travel through a city until People start to say, no, no, this is the most common, and then they put a road down on it, and then they put resources along that road. So I think you, what you're exactly saying in this trade route is we're going to see experimentation of different styles, different height, medium, um, low, medium, high Earth orbit, and then someone saying, hey, it's economically viable for me or us as a consortium to put up a central base in high Earth orbit mm -hmm. because there's enough volume and that's going to take the large container loads uh, how whatever that's defined as in for, for transport and it becomes a an eco economically viable model yeah so it'll just take some time for the footpaths 
to get a little bit of uh, yes. path wear down. Yes, I'm just sense? yes, I'm just worried about time time scales. You know me. <laughs> I'm worried well, about no, no, time well, scales. <laughs> I don't have time the, for footpaths, David. <laughs> actually, the the acceleration. Yes. The Project Moon Hut's objective is to accelerate the creation of a space based economy. Yeah. As I'm, you're talking to me, I'm saying to myself. Yeah. Because we agreed to do this podcast. We agreed to have this conversation. You did research you would not have done. That research is changing your behavior and your outlook on to how this could be done. There will be tens of thousands, hopefully millions of people eventually hear this podcast and someone says, I want to do the extra work. I want to build it further. So just this dialogue may have changed the future of trade routes within space. Yes. It wouldn't have happened if we hadn't had the dialogue as to what did you want to talk about. Oh, yes. Amazing. We're going to call it the yeah. uh, Whoever root, is building something, call trade me. Rack yes, theory. exactly. Call me. Tell me what you're doing <laughs> right now. Tell me. <laughs> Tell you. <laughs> so, okay, what else do you have with the trade routes? What else did you have you thought about? Well, I was thinking about tweaking the model. So the model is called Orbis. And it's done by I wrote it's by it's the Stanford University actually it's called the Stanford O O R B I S yes O R B I S the Stanford Geospatial Network Model of the Roman World, and I'm I would say grab the model and tweak its variants to suit space travel. Yeah, I would absolutely and, go for that. And we'll post the link with this yes. podcast so and, people can look at it. That's fantastic. We, yeah, I think it's a great starting point, uh, starting it, place. It's not a starting point. It's actually an accelerated point because a starting point is where do we start? And I've had conversations over the past three years about trade routes because that was from the original conversation mm -hmm. I had with Bruce how trade routes would be formed and what they would exist. I happen to use the model of um, Europe and the and Americas. But to have this with the trade routes that yes. were highly complex. Yes. And they handled multiple types of logistics. And variants, exactly. So they take yeah, into the, consideration a lot of things, and I can use that or a subset of it in order to put in things that we know today about SpaceX, Origin Blue, Atlas V. I can, I can do things with it. Yeah, no. It's, so it's it is a an accelerated jump because I hadn't I had not thought about the Romans, and if you think about the trade routes to the Americas, which in the beginning started with well, they're basically seafaring, mm -hmm. and there was there weren't the roads uh, or the the land version, and now for space we have air, land, sea, and space logistics, spatial logistics. Yeah, those four. How would something get from from uh, Greece up to space. Yes. Oh. Wow. And then how you have to got 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 to go both ways. Yeah. So how does it go? Where does it go? Where does that trade route go? Where does where's the launch pad? Where is the technology that'll get it up there? How will it go from base to base to base to finally make it, for example, onto the moon? Yeah. And same thing going back. Yeah. So time travel. Um, how many right. fuel? The whole thing can 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 be entered into that model, in my opinion. Yeah. L love it. Right. Love it. See, okay, I've done so, my job. Can I go now? All you, good? <laughs> you, can, you can go now, but no, you can't. Uh, because we have one more topic. New tech fits into uh, the trade route. So when you, what is, on the new tech side, what are you thinking? Okay, so I'm thinking about 3D printing. We need to talk about 3D printing. And I'm thinking about nanosatellite. And I'm thinking about artificial intelligence slash machine learning, which are very close together. And I'm thinking less about synthetic biology, but you could do a lot of things there as well. So which one would you like to start with? Well, I love them all. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm going to say, I'm going to start with the first one you gave, 3D printing. Okay. So 3D printing is uh, making a lot of steps, uh, huge steps in the last five years, I would say. And uh, it's becoming a buzzword. So people should be aware of its advantages and of its limitations at the moment. What uh, advantages 3D printing gives us? First of all, it allows us to print in one go 
very complex at times uh, models, things that you were you wouldn't be able with a really good, let's say, tool shed and a sophisticated, I don't know what place, you wouldn't be able to provide to to produce such a complex uh, machinery because in one go you put a digital uh, file for the 3d printer and the 3d printer on the go is able to use uh, different types of materials and different types of way of printing in order to print out something which have I don't know like 24 uh, knobs that interact with one another in a very intricate way and a very small scale okay it's a very delicate and very precise work so that's interesting um, we have 3D printing working for us now on planet Earth, big scale when it comes, for instance, uh, for cement. I think in China, for instance, if I'm not mistaken, mm -hmm. we're building yes. huge buildings with big slabs of cement, and they're all coming out for from 3D printers that are using cement 24 hours, seven hours, seven days a week. So we're sort of having the big things helping us for. For building and now we're we're tweaking all the small things the small things are for instance 3d printing of a microchip 3d printing of metals 3d printing of ceramics 3d printing of food of tissue whatever we're doing a lot of experimentation with 3d printing now one of when it comes to space uh, people are very excited about 3d printing for two reasons first of all there's a, a already a startup space company called made in space and in 2017 they were able to produce in the International Space Station uh, from uh, aerospace-grade material, a very strong polymer, a certain type of a knob that goes into the machine that helps, you know, with a certain type of a process. And they basically had a proof of concept there that the International Space Station can print locally um, items they need in order to fix things. That's very important. Instead of, you know, shuttling things up there, if you have the material in the International Space Station and you can do the printing process precisely enough, you are basically allowing the International Space Station to be a little bit more self-sustainable, self, you know, relying on, on itself. So that's an interesting concept with 3D printing, one. The second is that people are want to use it as in-situ resource utilization. They want to send 3D printing machines, for instance, to the moon or to Mars, and then you send uh, it basically like an autonomous robot, and the printer will get its instruction. It will know how to mix the regolith of the moon or the dust of the moon and whatever it finds on Mars, crush it together, and basically build brick by brick, for instance, a habitat or an industrial complex. So people are looking very far ahead with 3D printing, and it's doing its, I would say, its proof of concept baby steps in space at the moment. But it's interesting. Yeah, it's, it's, there's a lot of dialogue as to how the moon will have its first living structures, will there will be robots sent onto the moon, yeah. and then there'll be 3D printing of, of facilities. So there's there's a tremendous amount of dialogue going on about 3D printing and the advancements that are being made are astronomically beyond people's comprehension. Yes. So yes, this is an one of the areas that I've thought about just recently was we kill and it's not to say I'm pro or anti-life and what you do and what you eat, but we approximately the numbers like 69 billion animals per year. Yes. are killed for food. Yes. Yet we're not going to have we're not going to have cows and chickens and animals on the moon or anywhere within space. So what if we could 3D print a a meat mm -hmm, that mm -hmm. looks like chicken, tastes like chicken, smells like chicken and because of the needing protein in space, people in space say this is really good and we improve it to a point where someone says, "Well, if we're doing it in space, why don't we do it on Earth?" And then we no longer have to have cows, chickens, and, and cattle um, or have any type in farming. We could actually print the product that we need and get the same nutritional value. Yes. So I think there could be a, a reverse implication or a, a, a reverse benefit mm -hmm. to solving a space challenge on Earth. Yes. Both, both systems, absolutely. Uh, so 3D printing is supposed to help. It already helps us in building... Um, big buildings in China and helping construction here on Earth, and it also helps in providing very delicate 
an intricate machinery that allows us to do really sophisticated things. And it's interesting for Air me. Aircraft parts, uh, race car parts, car parts, these are being used everywhere now. So, yeah. yes, great. Mm -hmm. Okay. And, um, okay, so that's about 3D printing. We're not yet Nano. sure if we can build something on the moon or on Mars, but both, I think, ESA, the European Space Agency, and NASA have competitions in which they invite international companies and U.S.-based uh, companies to, to a challenge. And they say, we want you to use 3D printing with this type of soil, which is very similar to Mars or to the moon, and we want this structure at the end. Go. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And it's, I think it's a great system. I really, really yeah, do. I do too. When you look at new space and you look at the new space sector, a lot of the new companies are being funded by projects that are being a project by NASA and ESA, and it's a great way to funnel the money to work very efficiently for you and to get real solutions. I'm really happy about that. It's a good, good system. Yes, absolutely. Okay, so nanosats. Nanosatellites are awesome. So nanosatellites. Um, how, David? How much does it cost to launch a nanosatellite? Give a guess. Uh, the c cost to launch. I know they go from. Forty-five thousand up to like two hundred fifty thousand dollars to manufacture, but to launch, I don't know. I, I let's say I'm going to take a guess. You want to guess? I would say that it would cost a um, hundred thousand dollars per satellite. Yeah. No. Yeah. No. Yeah. No. <laughs> they cost at the moment between ten thousand to forty thousand dollars to launch. Okay. And you can either launch it on a rocket and distribute them in space, or you can launch them to the International Space Station. And then the astronauts within, they open a hatch and they just flip it out. And out of the window goes the nanosatellite. It's very poetic. I've seen them. They're, they're just being tossed out. Yes. Cool. It's very cool. And then, and of course, that, you know, that number of uh, launch costs is just going down. So we're doing a lot of things with nanosatellites. Um, in a lot of countries which never had a space agency or any kind of a space regime or ideas or plans are now using satellites, uh, nanosatellites, to establish themselves in the space club. And it's amazing. So this year alone, there's going to be between, I think, probably like 5,000 new nanosatellites in orbit around planet Earth, at least. And they're doing magnificent stuff with it. So partly it's mainly, so some places on Earth that don't have good communication are going to get communication coverage they never had before due to nanosatellites. Nanosatellites are being used as small labs in the space. So you can do all sorts of like physical and chemical and biochemical experiments and you can control it from your laptop or even from your smartphone. They're being used in one of the companies for asteroid mining because a lot of uh, some of the asteroid mining companies says first we want to prospect all the asteroids that are around us and we want to know which asteroid is the best for us. So we're going to use a nanosatellite to, you know, fly nearby, uh, check it out for water content, for metals, for, for minerals, things like that. Uh, and nanosatellites are very versatile creatures and they're very low, relatively have a low cost of usage. So that's the big thing. I know maybe people don't think it's a new tech, but it's actually, it's, it's erupted, <laughs> like it's there. Uh, yeah. It's not that it's not a new thing. When I talk to individuals, they don't even know nanosatellites exist. So nanosatellites so. sometimes termed CubeSat, and in any yeah, case, it's something the size of a shoebox. People do not know about these, so I tell them a 10 centimeter by 10 centimeter yes. by 10 centimeter, yes. multiple blocks put together. Yeah. And the average person <clears throat> who's in the space industry knows all about them. But the average person who lives on Earth, <laughs> the other, the other <laughs> 7.4 billion people, <laughs> they don't know what CubeSats are. Oh, okay. So space people are about billion people? Wow, that's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I can so, live with that uh, number. Yes, that's a good number. Yes. Uh, so then, yes, they're, I, they're transforming how we look at the world. So. Mm -hmm. How about the AI and the ML side? What are you, okay. what are you finding there? So 
Um, what I'm finding there is that they are used in the infrastructure side of handling data coming from space, whether it's big data coming from um, observation satellites and observation spaceship that we put around Mars and Moon and things like that. But also, for instance, if we're using clusters of nanosatellites and we're going to use thousands of them, managing all those communication lines, for instance, and managing um, different types. We want to use, for instance, different types of frequencies. We need to know how to handle them. We need to know what's the positioning of everything. It's a bit of a it's a bit of a complex uh, calculation. When you use machine learning type of calculation behind the control of these things, all of a sudden your capabilities have an exponential growth. For instance. Um, one of the things that you lose in space is because of the distance, the signals tend to, um, how do you say, it, degrade. The single signals mm -hmm. tend to degrade. And then you need to use different types of communication and you need to put perhaps buffer. And then on the receiving end, you have to realize that you're going to get very bad data and you need to do a lot of correction protocols and things like that. One of the things that we're that I heard that people are trying to do is that they're trying to use a cluster of nanosatellites and machine learning algorithms in order to make sure that they all use the same phase in order to do the same frequency and boost the signal as a as a cluster. No. Okay, yeah. That's a huge thing. That's basically saying, oh, I'm putting a telecommunication infrastructure in deep space. That's amazing. The only other mm -hmm. deep space network we know of is NASA's. And you have to use an X-band and you have to use certain protocols. But if you manage to do some something big like that and you're using clusters of nanosatellites, it's it's a big leap in a way. And you are able to do a lot, a lot more bandwidth, more signal corrections. You can take a lot more data. It's not much different than it's not much different than the trade routes. By establishing mm -hmm. the trade routes, you've establishing the road system by establishing the uh, nanosatellite as clusters you've established a communication system the communication system most likely and the road system let's call it that or the, the trade route system yep. will possibly end up aligning themselves to facilitate the movement of goods and services and 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 people yep yep so i'm, I'm cool yeah so i'm i'm thinking nanosatellites and i think there's one company i saw that actually through 3D printing in space, wants to print a nanosatellite that would then use a solar array that they're going to print in 3D, and then the nanosatellite would have like these three little robots arms, and it will, you know, put together the solar array in precise uh, locations and things like that. And I was thinking, oh wow, <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> Oh, there, there are some really neat technologies, as I told you just before we started the call. I'll be at the National Space Society's um, yeah. a, a small invite-only event. And last year, I learned about technologies of robotic arms and these type of technologies that allow the expansion and creation of uh, any type of space, any type of large structure in space, where we used to build them in pieces and like br bringing iron gear, yes. iron yes. rods out now. Yeah. We're we're able to use robotics to move product around in space to build large large structures. Yes. So, yes, yeah, so to be able to print it in space allows you then that added capability of we don't have to bring it. We build we print it here, and we start to form form it. Yeah. Yes. That's cool. That's cool. So just a, a final note about the machine learning. What what I'm trying to aim with machine learning is to um, cut down the the time it takes to control and uh, send out solutions. So for instance, if we have a communication coming from Mars, it will take it four minutes of any type of communication, data communication to come from Mars. And if there is any type of issue, you don't want a human in the way because we have a very slow, slow time response, slow response time. And with machine learning, you, you might be able even to cut down the machine, the machine itself, the computer time of suggesting a path to do this and that. That that was my only thing to say. This and handling big, big data. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. No. Absolutely. Uh, last one. A short, short little summary on the synthetic. What are you thinking okay. on this synthetic biology? I I have no idea where it's going to go. So you were talking about <laughs> no. It's just when it comes to space and and, and synthetic biology, I can think. Uh, I, I can't really put my mind around it and find a very specific application right now 
for synthetic biology. People are doing a lot, a lot of things with genetic engineering and synthetic biology on planet Earth. Okay, it's a booming area. It's fascinating. Go ahead and read about it. There's many, many things. You were talking about uh, tissues and hamburgers and replacing hamburgers. Mm-hmm. This is the same issue that yes. goes into synthetic biology, um, tissue regeneration, and things like that. People are interested. <clears throat> what are the, one of the things that at the moment are slowing us down in synthetic biology is that any application that has to do any application whatsoever that has to do with humans or what we eat or things like that it's 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 boggled down boggled down by a lot of safety regulations and a lot of legal work so there are, there are fascinating things that in theory we can do but we don't do it because there's no point because it's going to take us between 10 to 20 years just to go through the legal system yeah, but that might change if it's being done exactly. outside of Earth's atmosphere. So then there's a very interesting issue that says, what's, what, what, what kind of regulation do we have on space activities? Okay, Let's say China is building a base on the moon. Is China now owning a part of the moon? No. Did China sign the um, Outer Space Treaty? Did China, did China sign the Moon Treaty? You know, there's a lot of things that has to do with space regulation that uh, different countries are going to have to speed up their work on it in the next five and, to ten years. And that's where the Project Moonhut governance coordination side right. is specifically designed to address that. Mm-hmm. Because in, we cannot facilitate and accelerate the space-based ecosystem mm-hmm. if we don't accelerate things such as patent control, uh, trademark, <clears throat> property rights, and whatever thing, what other other activities that are there's a long list of things that we've got to decide on. Yeah, so, it's a very, very yeah, it's a very open area at the moment. There's a few things that the uh, United States has done uh, all sorts of acts that uh, allow uh, U.S. citizens to commerce space and get revenues out of it and things like that. But it hasn't been coordinated with other countries and and the, currently I think the most sensitive topic is anything that has to do with defense and arms. And there's a very interesting project called Milamos, uh, done in McGill University, but it's an international group of uh, of legal and law professionals that are trying to get an international space treaty on how to deal with armament in space. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. But the commerce issue is very interesting as well. People, but people are now still going. Don't don't get me wrong. When it's come to asteroid mining oh. and things like that, people are all over it. They're doing it. There's they're, companies. They're all over. Yes, they're doing it. So, so with all the research you've done, everything you've worked on, what do you think is uh, for for this podcast? In short, <laughs> what would be the most exciting discovery you made? Oh, I really like the the Orbis, the the geospatial network model of the Roman world, uh, the trade routing thing. I think the basic logic behind trade routes is is super important, and I think it's like a missing piece in some of the key individual in the in the industry. So, for instance, you see Elon Musk presentation at the ISC uh, in, mm-hmm. in Adelaide. And he actually brought up some very interesting points which fit into these things of trade routes, but he didn't um, didn't refer to him as, you know, trying to do a trade route. So, for instance, he looks at his Falcon Heavy rocket, which is a massive, it's a monster of a rocket, to get, you know, together with a dragon. And he starts talking about sustainability for it. So he's talking about uh, using it as a spacecraft uh, on planet Earth to give people an option to fly from Hong Kong to I know where in less than half an hour, things like that, because the rocket will go (laughs) out of the atmosphere and straight back into planet Earth across the... And and that's also what Branson is working on. Yeah, yeah. And um, he's talking about sending really heavy satellites into orbits, things that are the size of the Hubble telescope or maybe even twice that size. So he's thinking about sustainability and services that he can provide with his new invention. When, but basically what he's thinking about is, I want to get to Mars. And he already and he said as well, why don't we have a lunar base already? It's like 2017. What's, what's up with that? So in his mind, he is looking for a trade route network that he could fit in. But what he is finding and what his other space company are finding as well is that a lot of the infrastructure is still missing. And either you do the work by yourself. Yes, which is impossible to do it all by yourself. 
yeah, I mean, from in my point, in my opinion, Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk are like are the exceptionals to the rule. They're 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 role models, perhaps, but they're, it's very hard to follow their footsteps. It's almost impossible. well. It's not just hard to follow their footsteps. They, <clears throat> by and large, you're finding, my opinion, that they're doing much of what they're doing on their own. And what we really need to do is have a a global participation, which is what Pro Project Moonhut is about. You're from Israel, yes, and you're you're contributing to Project Moonhut, which is ha which has people from Berlin to Latvia, uh, Macedonia to Hong Kong, and all over the world participating in one one effort to drive this initiative and to look at things such as what you found this time. So. Well, I, I so much appreciate you taking the time Ru, to do the homework, to be willing to do the interview. I'm I'm extremely excited. I love the trade route component of it because it adds a texture or dimension to some of the work that we've already started with Project Moonhut, which you've just accelerated it. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you, David. It's been a pleasure. Always happy to help. Well, you are amazing. So let me tell you on this on this side, for those of you who are listening to a podcast for the first time or you've listened before and you'd like to go a little further, you can visit projectmoonhut.org and sign up for our future space-related database project and just by filling in one of the screens on the page and look for that. You can participate by going to facebook.com forward slash projectmoonhut and give us a like. And it's not that we want to hit you with all sorts of information. What we'd like to do is give you information or keep you abreast of what Project Moonhut is working on because there might be a place where you can help participate in one way, shape, or form. And you can always reach out to us with connecting on Twitter at, Pro uh, at Project Moonhut. So there are many ways in which you can uh, keep abreast of what we're doing as well as talk with us to see how you might be able to help. So for everybody, uh, once again, thank you very much. Thank you so Amazing much. Amazing that you were here. Thank I you. I love having you on the show, having you on the program. And I'm David Goldsmith, and thank you for <clears> listening. <throat>